This is Dr. Saba Marouf, and you are listening to Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action here on Podcast Detroit. I've been reading books of old, the legends and the myths, Achilles and his gold, Achilles and his gifts, and Spider-Man's control, and Batman with his fist, and clearly I don't see myself upon that list, but she said, where'd you want to go, how much you want to risk, I'm not looking for somebody with some superhuman gifts, some superhero, some fairy tale bliss, just something I can turn to, somebody I can kiss. Hello and happy Friday to our live listeners. Welcome to Unsung Heroes, Episode 3 entitled Lost and Found in America, an Immigrant Story. On this podcast, we hope to showcase ordinary people, pivotal moments, resilience, and extraordinary contributions. I'm your host, Saba Marouf, and my aim is to find and share stories of unique people who are making a difference each in their own individual ways, using their talents sparked by their passion. I know that for the past few months, uh, many of us have been a little bit anxious, um, maybe concerned, a lot of concerns, maybe depressed. I know there was there were days uh, that I didn't feel like getting out of bed, frankly. And when a psychiatrist tells you that, then you know it's bad. But with this podcast, I have a renewed energy and hope to share goodness, to share stories of positivity and promote promote diversity and inclusivity. I'm very excited to have this opportunity uh, to um I mean, and I'm inspired to share these conversations and glimpses of some amazing individuals with you. I hope to touch upon a wide range of topics and really dig deep into personal stories because that's what inspires me. Analyzing those difficult mem- moments, challenges, but then seeing how a person can come away from those trials as a motivated individual and one of action. So check out episodes one and two on www.podcastdetroit.com and look for the shows tab and you will find our show, Unsung Heroes. If you like what you hear, leave us a comment on on our Facebook page or on the website. We'd love to hear from you, and please share this podcast if you like it with your friends. Um, So, you know, we just uh, launched our podcast. It's been, and here, actually here in the studio with me is uh, Jessica, Jess, who's helping me out here. Um, and we are going to be joined with our my uh, co-host, Calvin Moore, who will be here shortly. But I feel very excited and inspired after this week. Um, so thank you, everyone, for your words of encouragement and your support. Um, and I'm slowly kind of building a team here, and I'm really excited about that. We will have the – we do have a Facebook page now, um, starting to build that up. And uh, we'll, you know, start – just keep building as we go along. But today I'm really excited um, uh, to introduce my third unsung hero, who is one of my mentors, Dr. Farah Abbasi. Um, as I mentioned, this episode is entitled Lost and Found in America, an Immigrant Story. So just a few words to introduce Farah before we get into our conversation here. As I mentioned, she's a personal hero of mine. We actually met when we were both residents in psychiatry, but I really got to know her when she started the Muslim Mental Health Conference, which we'll talk about. And having attended um, this conference and spoken one time, uh, but attended this almost yearly since its 
inception, I can tell you that as a Muslim psychiatrist and someone who's passionate about mental health, this conference is truly one of the highlights of my year. So Farah Abbasi is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Michigan State University, and she's the staff psychiatrist at the university's Student Health Center. In 2000, she immigrated to the U.S. from Pakistan with her husband and three daughters. While in residency in 2009, she was awarded the American Psychiatric Association SAMHSA Minority Fellowship, and she used this grant money to create awareness about cultural competency to redefine it as not just tolerance for others, but acceptance. In her work, Farah considers herself a cultural psychiatrist in that she seeks to understand the psychosocial history of patients and integrate faith-based services and interventions into treatment plans. In addition to her efforts to build bridges between cultures, Farah's work has led her to publicly address barriers that stigmatize and silence mental health issues within the broader community and the Muslim community. In recent years, she has presented to the Committee on Violence Against Women and helped address anti-bullying for Muslim youth to the Justice Department. So she is an advocate, an activist, a mother, and a mentor to many. She established the Muslim Mental Health Conference, which is coming up April 13th to 4th. And if you have any interest in transcultural psychology, the role of spirituality and healing, sociology or social work, I highly recommend that you attend this amazing conference. On a side note, as some of you know, I'm a psychiatrist as well. And Farah Bassi is one of my mentors. Um, I actually talked to her about this idea of this podcast um, a little over a month ago. And you know, after discussing ideas, uh, she was so supportive and she definitely gave me a vote of confidence and simply said, go for it. So here we are. And Farah, I'm so excited to have you on. Welcome. Thank you so much, Sabah. Um, and just to reiterate my part that I think you have been a very important and integral part of Muslim mental health journey. So the feelings you expressed are very mutual, and I am very excited to have a fresh voice like yours added to the blogs um, that are out there. So I'm really excited for you and for this um, work that you are doing. Thank you so much, and thank you for that um, vote of encouragement and support. That really meant a lot to me. So I've, you know, I've heard you speak a number of times and um, many of us that have been attending the conference and have come to your talks have heard you speak. But, you know, that's kind of the purpose of this podcast is I want to take these voices that we're used to hearing maybe in this area in Southeast Michigan and just be able to spread those voices and celebrate these stories and journeys. That's what this is all about. So I'm so happy that you're on with us to, uh, here with us today. So thank you. Um, so I guess just to get started, um, you know, going back to the beginning um, not the beginning, but your beginning as an American Muslim. Uh, I, I've always wanted to ask you, when did you decide to come to the U.S.? And how was your experience as a young immigrant? If you can tell us a little bit about that. Um, Saba, it's very interesting. Um, it seems like um, more than I chose America, America chose me. <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, it was all fate. My father-in-law uh, applied for a lottery system that was being um, for uh, like South Asian uh, um, countries. There was this lottery system uh, allotted by um, U.S. government so that out of like 
I don't know how many thousands of people who had applied, only a handful got the lottery. So I got my green card through this lottery system. I was very settled in my life with three kids and husband in Pakistan. I had no intention of moving. I thought, that's it. I've reached a point in my life. This is where we're going to live, and that's how things are going to go. But um, once we got the lottery, we first thought that we would just come and see if we like it here. Um, We traveled a few times, but... Every time I was so very sure, no, I'm not going to do this, and I would go back. But then things changed so drastically in Pakistan, politically and socially, that to raise my kids and my girls in a way that I was raised was becoming a big challenge. Um, So you can say we were um, some of the very reluctant immigrants (laughs) who came here, and uh, uh, I think uh, immigration, even out of choice, planned, is a big stress, big trauma. And I had uh, not, if I had not experienced it, I would have never realized. And um, I remember, and I talk about it, is the first day I, that really, it hit me, was that we focus so much on immigration as uh, INS, uh, screening, paperwork, but it's your actual process starts once you have arrived. And I remember distinctly the day, first day of my um, oldest daughter. She was six, six or seven years old when, and her first day at school. That it really dawned on me, like, oh my god, how am I gonna do this? I was standing there behind a t- tree. Um, just waiting to see if somebody says hello to her. And uh, I was so anxious. I could see so much stress on her face. And I was like, oh, my God, we didn't even take into account how it's going to impact the kids. So anyhow, when the first kid turned around and said hello to her, that's, I just, I could feel tears running down my face with relief. And I think... The important thing that uh, I really have started to emphasize is that how the host culture accepts you breaks either like, you know, that defines your immigration journey. It can make or break you. So acceptance and validation and welcome uh, inclusion from the host culture becomes a very important piece um, for you to move forward. And the focus then on integration, when we talk about integration, I think onus remains so much on the newcomer. So if you take it, it's so interesting, like think about any other species, plants, animal. When you are bringing them to a new environment, you are preparing the environment to be able to give them that fertile soil or that perfect temperature that they can adapt. Adaptation happens. It's a natural process. But initially, the the onus is on the host. And I think um, it's unfortunate or... um, 
too preposterous to think that human beings just can come and adapt and integrate. Integration is a two-way process and can only happen if both understand the importance and understand the need to um, coexist. Mm. Long answer, but... (laughs) No, 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 I love it. I mean, it says so much and I touches on so many different aspects you know theories of acculturation personal stories and i've always really appreciated when you've described um immigration as you know a a type of trauma and of course so many come uh to i know my parents did um to you know come to achieve the american dream but you kind of underappreciate how what the challenges are going to be how difficult it really is to leave everything that you've known and loved behind people family friends even landmarks um and special places and places that you grew up and that you know like the back of your hand um so i think that it is important to kind of appreciate that that life doesn't start when you come here but you've had a whole host of experiences with you already so um when did you no, I mean, go ahead? Yeah, that's uh, so you. It's a it, so I I have started talking about it like a cultural bereavement, a complete loss mm. of your as you knew yourself. Right, oh. you lose your identity. Your I mean, it's like. Um, they call, the phenomena is cultural bereavement, loss of smell, loss of familiar food, loss of familiar uh, norms, values, uh, way of celebrating things. Like imagine coming from Pakistan where you celebrated rain, like rain was the ultimate thing, right? And then coming to mm-hmm. a place where you worship the sun. So the first time I'm here and it's really cloudy and I'm like, oh, how beautiful it is. Can we go out for a picnic or something? And people were looking at me like, are you out of your mind? This is dark. This is gloomy. So your whole perspective, your cultural narrative change. And uh, uh, but I don't think we give time to the immigrants to be able to grieve. Uh, and to be able to, until unless you don't grieve, you wouldn't heal. And then until unless you don't heal, there's not a chance for future happiness happening. So, yes, both processes have to happen simultaneously, parallel. But I think what's happening right now is that the choice is not being given. You, It's like... Um, you are living in an age of instant, a fast uh, life, right? You you have to just become American from day one, and uh, I can. Uh, the moment I became American um, was like, you know, the day nine eleven happened, and we, we were all just glued to the TV, stunned, out of my mind because the reason I left and gave up everything I knew uh, and came to America was uh, for the sense of safety and security. So I was leaving behind all this terrorism and fundamentalism and the fear that, you know, I won't be able to have a life for my girls here in uh, in a way that I was raised. So then you come here and you see this happening and 
then suddenly you hear names like Muhammad and um, talking about Islam and Muslims and how immigrants are horrible. And it's like I was shaken to, to my roots, like completely shook. And then I remembered it was I had a parent-teacher meeting that day. So I just got up in a daze. I'm driving to the school again. I'm just crying without even realizing. And I'm, and I just went and sat in front of the teacher, completely numbed. And the teacher just got up and hugged me and said, "We will get through this." And I tell you, Saban, no amount of paperwork made me an American like that one word of "we." made me an American in an instant. I, mm. I, that day onwards, I started thinking, like, this is, this is my country. This is where I belong now. This is how I... So all my perspective changed. I wasn't thinking from what's good for Pakistan, what's good for uh, anything else. I was like, what is good for America? What is good for all of us? We are in this together, and we are interdependent, intertwined, and we cannot have two options anymore. So um, I I think it it's so important to understand that policies has limitations until unless policies reflect and impact people, they are just than paperwork and words. How long did, um, uh, when did you come here? When did 9-11 happen? How long had you been here? Um, uh, shortly after I arrived. So initially I uh, arrived in, Calif- like we went to California. So in 2000, uh, I think end of 2000, I got here to Michigan. And I think then, yeah, um, well, literally uh, months, uh, almost like a few months after that, nine mm-hmm. eleven happened. So we were still reeling from our experience of readjusting to. And like you said, um, I think if I, so I was an internist back home, and if I was a psychiatrist at that time, or even had that much experience with mental health. I would have diagnosed myself with clinical depression at that point because it was hard. It was just hard. I wouldn't get out of bed. I didn't want to open my window for days because it was just overwhelming to not wake up in your familiar room. So for the longest period, even if I was awake, I would keep my eyes really shut tight that I didn't want to open and see the new room and and open the window, look at new faces. So imagine, like, just being put behind a driving wheel and you don't know where you are going. Almost like put behind a car wheel with blindfolds on. Um, It's interesting that I moved to East Lansing, which is comparatively a smaller area, but I managed to get lost even in a small neighborhood. Now I go back and drive around, and I was like, how could I get lost in this small neighborhood? But this is how your mind is numb, and it's, it's, there's such a delay to process new information. And uh, I, honestly, I felt like somebody just cut my hand and feet and threw me in a corner and said, wait for them to grow back. 
that's how, mm. to me, immigration is. And I think, you know, I want to reiterate for our listeners, especially that don't have this experience, it's not that, of course, and I'm speaking this, I guess, as a daughter of an Im- of immigrants, that, uh, you know, I know from my hearing from my own mo- my own parents and my mom in particular, you know, she had they, these this idealism, the sense of idealism. They wanted to come and you just don't realize it's going to be so difficult. So they were happy to be here, but they didn't. I think it's you just don't realize what you're actually sacrificing. You're sacrificing growing up with your parents and having a relationship with grandparents and all of those things. And again, it's not that, you know, I know my parents are so, I mean, they're as patriotic as Americans come. So thankful to be here. But I, again, I just don't think they realized what a sacrifice it was. And that's kind of what I'm hearing from you too. I, uh, I do have a question on and that. We, Calvin uh, is here with I us now. I am here. Um, yeah. So you were saying that a lot of the onus is on the, the person that's immigrating to the United States, whereas the, the, the onus should be on the host because people who are coming here are traumatized and they haven't had a chance to grieve. What are some ways that uh, the the host country can be uh, prepared for an immigrant? Because especially if you're coming to the United States, America is very much a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, fences make good neighbors uh, kind of mentality. Like I didn't know my neighbor's names for seven years living next to them. Like we kept to ourselves and that's kind of this, we have this whole autonomous culture. So when people are coming from one culture that is completely different from ours, that might even be a more communal culture into a culture that is more um, individualistic and autonomous, how can the, the receiving culture learn to be uh, more, more like home for the people that are coming here, help them to walk through this traumatic experience? I, I'll, I'll take you. So first of all, let me just add to what Sabah said. Sabah, I am so very grateful to be an American today. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the world but in America today. So definitely, um, I think coming back to what you are saying, Calvin, the biggest resource an asset that you have is your people. I think pe- American people are so generous, so uh, warm and welcoming. It's the policies when they do not match the expectations of the people. How you can be a simple example I just gave you is a teacher getting up and saying, we, mm-hmm. thinking in that terms that instead of you and us, it should be V from day one. And the focus is so much on screening and immigration is the part of just that part is considered immigration. I think we need to focus on integration. And integration, like I said, it's a two-way road. I'm not saying only the host culture has to do everything. The person coming in has to do his part. If it is learning a skill, a language, or whatever it takes to integrate effectively into the host culture, adaptation happens. But initially, when they arrive, so think of it this way. You are given 90 days. Think of refugees. First of all, refugees don't get to pick the country they are going to be sent to. Right. They are coming traumatized, vulnerable. But we do the physical health screening. We do so many testing, 
we are not providing enough mental health resources. We are not understanding the trauma uh, of what they have experienced. Let's say in my case, my immigration was out of choice. Theirs is not. So even if I felt that the struggle that I went through, imagine multiply it um, 10 times more for those who are coming here um, fleeing for their life maybe. So small things like inclusivity, understanding trauma, providing mental health resources, and to go beyond your own comfort zone, like you said. It shouldn't take you seven years to know your neighbors. This is a time that we need to come together. Mm -hmm. So what I did, once I overcome my initial days of depression or whatever, sadness, or once I was able to grieve, one day I decided that's it. I made some food, knocked on my neighbor's houses and said, hey, I'm here. Um, um, I just wanted to introduce myself. So I went out. I And in some cases, yes, the neighbors would come out. Unfortunately, what happened for me is 9-11 happened. So people were more suspicious about who this new person is who's dressing differently. Is she, does she, is she one of them? So um, that's why I had to take the initiative, knock on every, like my neighbor's doors and said, Hey, are you guys doing okay? I hope you didn't have family and friends in uh, New York. And, you know, uh, this is who I am. And I offered them food or whatever I, like, you know, um, I, I would just. But that's the process I decided that I cannot just isolate and stay, uh, live in my fear or isolation or be in my comfort zone. I had to push myself to go out. And that's the thing we all have to do is, is to be, so even if you look at from research point of view, we are finding it that the more you know about someone, less biased you would be towards that person. Okay. So uh, reaching out, um, checking our own biases, our own blind spots, and just be open. And I can only summarize it in one word, acceptance. Acceptance, the like the new immigrants have to accept, um, the fact that they are in a new country, new culture, be ready to adapt. Same way the host culture has to accept the newcomers, the new influences, the new impact that they are bringing with them. And, and acceptance is very inclusive, non-judgmental, open two-way street. And it is the only way to move forward. So I guess that kind of, you know, this this gives a really good picture of kind of what you went through and your initial, you know, the stages that you went through really of grief and then with 9-11 and everything. How did um, this lead you on the path? And when did you realize you had a passion for mental health? Um, so I did my exams. You know, you have to retake your board exams um, um, once you uh, come to America. So I took my board exams, and I was doing an observership as an internist in one of the local hospitals, and I absolutely couldn't handle the way um, internal medicine was happening at in, at that time. Like, 
uh, the attending would go in, have a 15, 20-minute quick visit, but the focus was so much on the disease and the symptoms and the treatment that I felt we are missing a very important part. Like, attending would leave and I would be concerned if the patient's mom is doing okay or how is the patient taking this or what's the next, That's how are they going to handle it emotionally. And I was struggling uh, at that point. And then the uh, attending in the hospital, the psychiatrist, she looked at me one day and said, why are you wasting your time in internal medicine? You are cut out for a psychiatry. And I was like, really? Uh, and I was amazed, like, you know, uh, what she saw in me because I have always uh, been fascinated with psychiatry and mental health. But, you know, coming from cultures where it was so stigmatized, or even if we in medical school had a psych rotation, it was just something you did to complete your requirements, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like, huh, how am I going to deal with it? So initially when I came home, so I come from a family of a um, lot of physicians, internists, pulmonologists, nephrologists. So the, when I first came home and I said, I'm going to be a psychiatrist, there was a pin drop silence because nobody <laughs> knew what would that entail um, and why would I want to do that. Um, so then I did an observership um, in psychiatry and I just loved it. And honestly, it's like, it's not a profession, it's a calling. You have to take it. It's not just eight to five job. It is a lifestyle um, thought process. Um, it's a, it's an action for life. So I, I and I love it. Uh, I feel so grateful, so thankful. I feel like it's a gift that's been given to me. Wow, I can definitely um, appreciate that and feel very similarly. I think we're really blessed to be in this field. So, tell us how that led. Um, you know, how you came across or how this all led to the inception of the Muslim Mental Health Conference and particularly how the experience of uh, organizing and running this conference has changed you. Um, so, but like I said, I realized, like, why didn't I become a psychiatrist back home? And I realized how prevalent the stigma was around mental illnesses. Um, and then coming here, when I started my uh, practice as a resident, supposedly I'm in a Muslim-majority population area, and still we were not seeing enough Muslim patients in the clinic. And But at the same time, you would get these calls like someone's father, brother, son, daughter, wife, husband, struggling, and um, they would, but it was always in hushed tones. They wouldn't make eye contact and wouldn't want to acknowledge it in daylight, like, oh, they have talked to you about something. Uh, at the same time, there would be, uh, <laughs> uh, in the community, kids come up to me and say, oh, I want to be a physician, but I don't think psychiatry is real or psychiatrist is a real doctor. Things like that really pushed me. And then luckily, I got the minority fellowship and I was like, you know what? I need, if I'm ever going to be an advocate for mental health, it has to start at in our community, you know, 
um, I, I think work has to start in within your uh, home and your community. So um, that's how I reached out to, and I realized that there was some uh, uh, some of the health providers doing uh, stuff around men, uh, Muslim mental health. I met Hamada Hamid, uh, got connected with him, and he talked talked about the Journal of uh, Muslim Mental Health, which. Uh, had been published for a few years, but was not uh, um, uh, like being published at that point. So I realized I was like, okay, I want to do Muslim mental health work, but I also knew that I want to do more um, community outreach. I wanted to do services that can be can have a impact on everyday person's life and not just do academic research, which definitely has a huge important value, but still sometimes does not translate on ground services. It can impact policies, but it, I, I wanted to have a safe place created where everyday person can just come out, be open, acknowledge that, okay, I have the struggle, and uh, what can I do with it? So three goals uh, I adopted from day one for uh, Muslim Mental Health Conference. Um, one was creating awareness. Second was acceptance. And third was access. So I knew that I had to start from a very layperson, a basic information difference between what's mental health, what mental illnesses is, what is depression, anxiety, stuff like that, very basic stuff. And I also wanted to create acceptance, and I realized that it, acceptance has to go two ways. One thing is acceptance in the community, that yes, depression, anxiety, everything that's out there exists in Muslim community as well, that prayers can be a buffer, a protective layer, but cannot just... Uh, be a barrier to mental illness, that if you are praying enough, you won't get depressed or anxious. So I had to work around that. But also I realized an important aspect was acceptance of Muslim patients to my colleagues, that they need to understand what does it mean to be Muslim? What's the sensibility of being a practicing Muslim? So sensitivity and sensibility of a Muslim patient. So we, that was one uh, goal with acceptance was make my colleagues be accepting of Muslim patients, meet them where they are. And because one of the things I realized when I started talking to people is why they didn't want to access care is they didn't feel that their uh, problems would be understood by a Western-trained psychiatrist. And we, like, uh, Calvin said initially that we are coming from a very interdependent and collectivistic society mm -hmm. to a very individualistic society. So how do we make that transition? And that's the thing that worry a lot of our patients is, is our provider going to understand what I mean is that every given day I'm not only caring um, issues around my identity, but I'm also worried about my parents, my siblings, my extended families, and the collective collectivistic trauma, you know, of uh, going through something. I, I have a so, question. Uh, 
I have a couple of questions. Sorry, on this. Go ahead. Um, I come from a, yeah. uh, I, I myself come from a, a faith based background, but I come from a Christian background, which is the majority, you know, religion in the United States. And within our faith, we were told, you know, you don't need to go to, you know, see a, a psychiatrist either. If you just pray enough, yeah. um, you, you know, God will take, you know, whatever you're dealing with away. And, and so there was kind of this stigma, but there was also the added stigma of being African-American and remembering things like the Tuskegee experiment where, you know, men were given syphilis to see, you know, how it, you know, how it played out within the African-American community. And so a lot of black people, because of that, will not go to one, the doctor or two, the psychiatrist. And so right. it's been really interesting within those two communities, within the Christian faith-based community and in the African-American community at large, trying to get people to go to uh, to see a psychiatrist or to know, hey, this isn't a bad thing, going and getting the help that you might need. I just had a friend a couple weeks ago had a total mental break, total break from reality in a fugue state for sure. It was all over the news and a really sad state of affairs, but grew up in a culture that I'm sure when he gets home, there's not going to be a support base that understands it or accepts that as anything other than um, a demonic attack of some sort. And so that that's a question for me when it comes to Muslims wanting people to understand there is a spiritual component to to the life of a Muslim, right? I mean, you believe in God, you believe in faith, you believe in going to the mosque and worship and things like that. So what role, yeah, praying doesn't do enough. It, it's not a buffer, but um, what role can faith play? Because if, if faith doesn't play a role for Muslims, um, I guess my thought, looking at it coming from a Christian background, the same way it works for Christians— is if there's not a role for my faith in the help that I'm going to get, then the help isn't going to really be help for me. So is there a way to integrate Muslim faith into the mental health that, that people are seeking and need? Uh, Calvin, so absolutely. Um, I am a big proponent of faith-based mental health, and American Psychiatric Association has acknowledged it now as well. So faith is an integral part of your resiliency. Faith uh, has to be a part of your dialogue to our uh, your journey towards healing. So definitely what I initially had to work through was that faith and so the faith leaders and professional mental health providers have to come together. And that is the basic of Muslim Mental Health Initiative, that you are bringing very professional care, but in a very faith-based setting. So absolutely, faith has to be part of the dialogue. Um, it's important, but we cannot go to the absolutes, like you said. Right. We cannot assume that mental illness is a spiritual weakness and that only praying is the solution. Neither can we say only meds is the solution. So think of it this way. If you were pre-diabetic and you went to a doctor, the doctor would say, let's first make life changes, behavioral modifications, and see if we can manage diabetes without putting you on meds. Then you get to a point that you might develop a mild um, diabetes where you need some oral hypoglycemics. So the doctor says, continue the lifestyle changes, behavioral modification, but let's add a little oral hypoglycemic. Then if so, you go on and develop 
uh, a stage where you need insulin dependency, we would say continue the lifestyle changes, de-stressing, diet control, exercising, meditation, and add the insulin. This is the same with mental health. If your lifestyle changes, which should include regular sleep, diet, exercise, meditation, spirituality, religion, what family support, whatever you can bring in to make your strengthen your coping skills. If that is enough for you to be able to deal with depression, good. If not, let's try a medication along with the lifestyle changes, along with maybe to bring in therapy. So those are all, because human beings are not one-dimensional. We have to bring in the psychosocial, uh, cultural aspect. So you brought in African-American background. That's a whole different sensibility than you just being Christian. So you have an intersectional identity, and so your treatment should be addressing all aspects of who you are. I'm not going to just say, hey, you just should be taking Prozac. I would say, take Prozac, talk to your church, bring to discuss with your clergy your struggles, bring in your social support, get attached to uh, advocacy group. All that is going to be part of your healing, your learning to cope with your illness. Yep, exactly. Um, I actually do some a uh, few discussion groups with uh, trainees, um, psychiatry residents, and on this topic of uh, religion and mental health. And um, and I think that it's great that the university and the course directors asked um, asked me to do that because I feel like I can make an impact um, at a time when you know when I was going through residency, we had lect- good lectures, but we didn't have anything really addressing spiritual religious aspects. Um, so just the fact that they're open to hearing about that. And research tells us, too, that in exactly what you're saying, to reiterate, um, inclusion of chaplains and religious leaders in the treatment plan has been shown to improve uh, outcomes. So we definitely know that that um, is something positive. So I wanted to ask you, um, Farah, just kind of looking at the current political climate, um, everything that's kind of going on right now, how has that impacted you as an American Muslim and in your work and the advocacy work that you do. And, and then, you know, I posted this picture of you at the Women's March in Lansing. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that, too. Um, so the same way as we tell our patients that the more you isolate, more your negative thoughts get stronger, more you would feel depressed. So we encourage them to communicate. I do the same as a citizen. It's extremely important um, anyhow to own your citizenship, be engaged. That civic engagement is important. If you do not want things to happen to you or for others to assume narratives on your part, then it is your duty to speak up, be visible, be engaged. Um, So from day one, that has been part of my process and has helped me immensely that uh, instead of uh, just getting worried about something or stressing out about something, I turn to, to change it into action. And uh, you must have heard that that 
uh, it's not the um, anger of people that affects you. It's the silence of people that in the end let bad things happen. So more than ever, I think it's a time to speak up and uh, break the silence, uh, break the stigmas. Um, the movement has to be very intersectional and inclusive so we can just advocate for one vulnerable population saying other struggles do not matter. We all have to come together and fight for our for our country, uh, fight for own our citizenship and uh, be the part of process, be the part of this. So think of it this way. In some ways, I feel it's the worst of times, but it is also the best of the times because there's no time. We don't have the luxury of complacency anymore. Uh, it's like a do or die moment for all of us. So we all have to be really politically aware and civically engaged. Definitely would agree with that. Um, yeah, that's definitely for sure. Uh, so, you know, you had actually suggested this title for this episode, which I love, Lost and Found in America. We talked a little bit about your struggles and what you lost, the trauma of immigration uh, the losses that you felt at different stages. What have you found and what have you gained through this process? I'll tell you the, you said I went to Lansing um, um, Women March uh, um, on the Capitol. Um, I went one person, one rebel, feeling scared, and I came back 10,000 strong. This is my American experience. I've, I've rediscovered myself, found areas of growth and strength um, that I never thought I was able, capable of. Uh, I have met the best of my friends now are here. Um, I have found, uh, um, like, you know, as a mental health provider, mother, activist, uh, American, I feel like I, I have so much privilege and rights, and I want to give back and do so much more. It's like a um, small girl in a candy shop. Uh, I, I feel like I have so many options, and the world has just widened and things that I, I can do now. But I think, let me emphasize a very important message. We as Americans have to understand when we say we are the leaders of the free world or we um, kind of, people look up to America as a model uh, of integration and coexistence, we need to understand that with the privilege comes the responsibility. That every time we are voting, we are not just voting for America, we are voting for the rest of the world. Policies that we make here, choices that we make here, are all have huge impact on the rest of the world. So we absolutely need to understand the importance and the privilege and the responsibility of being an American. 
Now, I, I know um, Saba mentioned that uh, you were at the march in Lansing, and I, I think Lansing might be more of a melting pot, at least uh, culturally, in terms of people being there because of Michigan State University and things like that. Um, but I do know we. Uh, I was on another podcast and, and we talked about the women's march and there were women who had gone and there were women who who abstained from going. One abstained because she was really conservative and didn't feel like it it spoke to uh, you know uh, spoke up for her and and what she stands for. Uh, but then, interestingly enough, there was a a black woman on on the panel who said, you know, feminism in America has generally been a the purview of, of white women. And then she looked at the March on Washington and she said, look, you know, a lot of women are left out because not everybody can afford to just travel to Washington, D.C. on the weekend. And that's why it looked like predominantly white women. And she said that that's really how I felt uh, for many, many years as a feminist who is unwelcome in feminist circles because I'm bringing up that black women are disrespected, unres- you know, you know, unaccepted, disrespected and all these different things and unprotected. And so as a as a woman of color, as as a woman who is an immigrant uh in the United States, uh how did how did you feel as part of the march in uh like you said you went alone and scared and you came home 10,000 strong, but did you notice were you in the minority at the one in, La- in Lansing? And, and how do you feel about the overall movement since since then? I definitely um, naturally was in a minority. Um, but also, I and I absolutely um, understand and resonate with the feelings you are expressing of being a colored woman, we have our own set of challenges. Um, and of course, being uh, right now, being from a Muslim also brings another set yep. of uh, problems and a feeling of uh, isolation and fear. But I also feel this is the moment to push barriers. Okay. This is the moment to create our own space. And I... Honestly, with the speech, I did not get one negative remark. I got so many hugs, so many support, so much support. And I, I, I do see, even if I look at the black leaders like Martin Luther King or um, uh, in the uh, – we have uh, Tehisi quotes coming in mm-hmm. – um, when you open up and take a stand, people make space for you. But we have to push the barriers, create our own space, own our space now, uh, own our um, right to be here, right to be visible, right to be heard, um, so right to speak up. So I think what the pushback will be there, but if I we do not give in and if we stand together, I think this is the moment to be able to create that space. You have history has been altered already. You have had Barack Obama in White House, so you have. We are making dents. We have a long way to go, but we are on the right path right now. Okay. With Black Lives Matter, with 
black leaders taking lead. We might be in minority, we might not be visible yet, but we are, Beyonce is leading opera. You have great role models out there that are working towards that goal. We might be small, but we are growing, and that is where the focus has to be. I like that hopeful outlook. Yeah. I like that. And I think along with building bridges, though, we have to be real um, with what are the biases, what are, you know, kind of the ideas or um, archetypes or stereotypes that each group, I think, has of the other, too. We have to be open to discuss that. You know, sometimes those are, um, would, you know, there's a whole book on this, but crucial conversations, but they're crucial because, you know, they might be moments of discomfort and acknowledging uh, interactions or ideas or um, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically stereotypes that we've had of each other, but you're not going to get over that unless we sit down and talk about it. So I think another thing is, I mean, I'm seeing this kind of just locally too. People are getting more involved with um, local um, organizations in their cities. And as long as we really encourage all people to come and not just representative of one body, then, you know, I hopefully those are first steps, whether it's an organic, um, a social group, or whether it is something that's, you know, an organization that's coming together for a common cause. So a lot of work to do. I think there's a lot that lies ahead. Um, but I think that um, basically, you know, kind of, I think we're going to wrap up now. Um, but Far, I'm so happy that you were able to come. Uh, you know, she's calling in from Lansing. If you are ever in the area on a Friday, we would love to have you here in the studio. Uh, definitely the dynamic in person um, is is different. And we'd love f- to have you here as a guest co-host. Um, if you're ever in the area, please let us know. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? Um, just one last word is that the journey has begun and we are all in this together. So um, love to everyone. Keep doing, keep working, keep moving. Take care. Thank you so much, Farah. Thank you, Calvin. Hey, I'm no glad problem. you could join us. I always love being here. No, that was awesome. Any other reflections over the last week, by the way, after our first two episodes have released? Oh my gosh, it's been a crazy week. I I wish I could say that I reflected more and I wish people... <laughs> you had uh, a lot going on. Uh, yeah, uh, I, you're looking at me. People yeah. can't see me, but half my face is swollen right now uh, because uh, I have an infected uh, tooth. Oh my gosh, so, you're such uh, a trooper. You're still I am, here. Well, I am on Motrin 800 right now, so <laughs> I'm feeling helps. good. I'm feeling really good. Um, but no, um, I thought... I thought uh, the first two episodes that we recorded were really good. I got to I got to listen to them now that they're up on iTunes and things like that. And I'm I'm just really proud of you. And I can't wait till the next episode because I get to talk to you oh, and find oh, and, and did we commit to that? Yeah, oh, we did. Okay. And, and kind of get to introduce people to to who you are and ask you the questions, put you on the other side of the microphone. So yeah, I mean, just really good, really good program. Loving what's going on here, and I'm I'm wishing you all the best with it. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I started out saying, I'll reiterate it, you know, go ahead, um, everyone, if you can just go on to, if you're interested in hearing our first two episodes, for right now, they're on the website, podcast.com. You go under shows and look under- Pod, uns- Podcast Detroit. Oh my God, what did I just say? You said Podcast Detroit. Yeah. I did say that. Podcast Detroit. Can't leave out the Detroit part of it. <laughs> Podcastdetroit.com. Go under shows, under Unsung Heroes, and you can find our first two episodes. Please leave us a comment. We also have a Facebook page, Unsung Heroes, Stories to Inspire. 
We'd love to hear your comments and feedback. Oh, and I forgot to mention, if you have an unsung hero that you would like to nominate, please send us a message or um, put a message up on that Facebook page or you can send a message to that group. And we'd love to hear all about the heroes that you would like to have showcased here on the show. Um, thank you so much. And we'll see you here from you next week. Not